Have you ever wondered what it's really like to live alongside wild wolves? Well, we're about to find out on this episode of For the Wild Ones, brought to you by the International Wildlife Coexistence Network. Now, if you're not familiar with our work on wolf conservation, you should know that IWCN isn't just in the room. We're at the table championing solutions that benefit communities as well as wildlife. Some of our efforts to protect wolves over the past year include continuing IWCN's Wood River Wolf Project based in Blaine County, Idaho. This year was our 16th field season, and we successfully worked to protect 24,000 sheep with zero, that's right, zero confirmed wolf depredations due to our partnerships with local ranchers, sheep herders, and community members. We also continue to work directly with Colorado Parks and Wildlife to train park officials on non-lethal strategies and tools to implement the reintroduction of wolves to Colorado. We continue to appeal to Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland on the urgent need to relist wolves in the Northern Rockies. And we've presented our non-lethal strategies at Oxford's University Coexistence Conference, Philadelphia's Fittler Club, the Colorado Sunfest, Washington DC's Wildlife Services National Stakeholder Committee, Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission meetings, and Nez Perce Council meetings. One of the most exciting projects we're working on is with Senator Cory Booker and indigenous leaders to institute a new Senate bill that will provide protection to wolves, bison, and grizzly that will enhance tribal co-stewardship of these species nationwide. And yet, sadly, wolves of the Northern Rockies are facing more persecution than ever through unregulated and unlimited hunting and state-sponsored bounties that can only be considered a strategy for eradication. And so I urge you to add your support to our efforts by signing our petition to Secretary Holland and making a meaningful donation at wildlifecoexistence.org. Now, let's turn to our guests for this episode. We're going to hear from team members of two leading initiatives, the Wood River Wolf Project. We constantly don't know what we're up against. Reports come in sparingly. People hear things, people see things. They don't always know what they're hearing or seeing. And the Voyager's Wolf Project. Most wolves don't cause issues. And so that's what was particularly frustrating, I think, was knowing that there were so many wolves that were on this ranch that had done nothing but still were removed every day and often during all-night stakeouts these folks are on the ground trying to figure out the truth about living with wolves i know that there's a lot of uncertainty in the work that each of you are doing but when you're working with wolves there's a big range of potential outcomes, trying to understand what they're up to. 
And I want to give each of you a chance to introduce the work that you're doing and make it clear for listeners so they can understand the challenges as we get deeper into that. So Maxwell, would you mind introducing yourself and the Wood River Wolf Project? I know it's it's a lot without coffee, but... <laughs> no, it's, I'm happy to. So yeah, my name is Maxwell McDaniel. I'm the lead biologist here for the Wood River Wolf Project in Blaine County, Idaho. This is a on-the-ground affair with local livestock producers, primarily sheep in the county here, specifically sheep, as this is one of the largest sheep herding locations still left in the country. We deal with uh, a few packs of wolves and stray individuals coming through the county and basically do everything we can to encourage coexistence between all, all sort of stakeholders and groups out here in the Saltus. So that includes livestock producers, the herders, the general public, environmentalists, and that is inspired by potentially using non-lethal tactics to deter attacks on livestock in hopes that we can prevent any issues from occurring so there is no retaliation from the ranching community towards wolves. Now, that doesn't necessarily include lions or bears or other predators that are present here that they will suffer depredations from, but it's just doing everything we can to work with all the predators and uh, all the other players in the game out here. In that regard, are you also monitoring other predators? Not specifically, but we do. It's not the always the original plan, but there is this window when trying to figure out basically what is causing issues. We might not necessarily know what's coming in to certain areas and affecting sheep or causing other problems. So it's a series of cameras and grids throughout the community. It's um, constant interviews and reaching out with the herders, meeting with them every day to sort of get an idea of what they're seeing, what they're hearing at night. Um, primarily the guys who are there on the ground 24-7, um, sleeping out there in the field every night. They have a better idea of what's coming in there. So when there has been issues this year, for example, and we know it's not a wolf necessarily coming in and causing the problems, we're still there doing our best to basically provide our support to these livestock owners and producers out there with hopes of just ensuring their, their, their interaction and relationship with our project, as well as working to protect and save any, you know, potential predator species out there in the wilderness. Everything is looked after. There's nothing. We're, we're not interested in, in protecting and supporting. The primary focus is definitely the, the wolf packs in the areas. They have a lot more pressure being placed on them and they're handled very differently than they are, for example, a lion or a bear coming in. So wait a second, you're telling me that there are guys out there sleeping on the ground 24 seven? Yeah, basically. The producers here, they employ sheep herders from Peru as part of their seasonal work. A lot of them do it back at home. And during our season from anywhere in April to all the way into October, they employ these Peruvian sheep herders, which are originally coming from higher elevations, used to the 
the environment. They're used to the elevation and they stay, they work out in the field for three, four, five, six months continuously. Um, Occasionally they'll have a base camp and they'll work with the sheep overnight or throughout the day and return to camp. But for the most part, they're moving every few days, they're moving sheep constantly. They encompass a huge range and they trail these sheep over countless miles through multiple towns and counties and uh, national forests. So when they're out there sleeping every night in the woods, they're out there moving the sheep all day. They're obviously seeing a lot more than we have the ability to. So utilizing the information that they're able to acquire out there is incredibly important. And how do you do that? Well, at the beginning of the season, it's kind of a shot in the dark as far as figuring out who's where and what's going on. Wolves have an incredibly large range, really mobile, and they move pretty quickly. So initially, it's basically going off historical information of where were they last year, where have they been sighted. Just any tidbits, any scraps of information we're able to pull together from our project and from the community. And from there, it's basically utilizing a system and grid of, of camera traps that are set up throughout the uh, throughout the forest and the county. And uh, from there, just constantly checking everything, trying to learn where they're not only located, but sort of the corridors that they're moving through. And then using that information to focus and give a little more attention to areas we think they might be holding up in, where they could be denning. The worst case scenario is these herders unknowingly pushing sheep basically into a, a high activity area that the wolves are utilizing where they could be potentially denning and they could respond in, in a negative way. So it's just doing everything we can to inform ourselves and inform the livestock producers of what's going on to prevent any incidents. So that's, that's half of it. The other half is going out and meeting with these guys every day, every week. So it's keeping track of each band in the county, keeping track of each herder and making check-ins with them, finding them out there, hiking into where they're located, talking to them, providing them the gear they need and the tools they need to do their job and using the information they provide us to give us a better understanding of what's moving around out there and where it's going. It sounds like some strange sport, some some <laughs> strange version of football or, or soccer where you don't know where the other teams are. Yeah, I guess that's the idea behind it, and that's what makes it difficult. Is we, we constantly don't know what we're up against. Uh, reports come in sparingly. People hear things. People see things. They don't always know what they're hearing or seeing, but we're going to investigate it no matter what and try to basically put a picture together with the pieces that were given. So it's most of the time an incomplete picture. But throughout the season, you start to get an idea of where they are, exactly who you can count on and when and where you can communicate with some of these guys and sort of establish these bonds over time. I can't overstate how important that is to have the livestock producers trust out there. I made a, a somewhat humorous comment about this kind of being like a sport, but it's, it's serious to most people out there in the community. It's high stakes. I'd say it absolutely is, especially here in the community. Ranching and livestock have historically been such a such a central theme in, in Idaho here. Wolf reintroduction in the West has been a very polarizing topic for most in these communities that are affected by it, from Washington, Idaho, Montana, this year, Colorado. People have very strong opinions one way or the other, and losing livestock or potentially hurting dogs and things of that nature for these livestock producers, they... they 
it's a very emotional thing for them sometimes having depredations. The attacks sometimes can be taken very personally. And obviously the community itself can have a very strong opinion. It can sort of split ideas in the community. But our idea behind that is basically making sure something gets done. Because if nobody's willing to have the conversation and nobody's willing to do the work out there and find sort of the middle ground between some of these groups may or may not have a lot to lose from it, a lot of skin in the game, then ultimately these animals suffer. Which animals are you referring to? I mean, just the wolves. How often are, are losses happening from your experience and what percentage of those losses are, are from wolves rather than... So it, it varies greatly throughout the state and throughout the, the Western U.S. Here, directly within our project area, um, it's been fairly successful over the years. Wolves essentially account for less than 5% of the predations, generally much, much less than that, as compared to other physical ailments, other predators on sheep. Here in Idaho, it's a little higher. Within the county here, I'd say their losses due to predators are, are far below, far, far below 5% of what they're actually running because they'll run anywhere from seven to 10,000 sheep through the county here. There might be a handful of depredations throughout the season and generally maybe one, maybe two of those could be confirmed a wolf. Uh, we haven't had anything like that happen this year, but historically in the past, the numbers fluctuate a little bit, but uh, overall what they lose to these predators out there is far, far less considerably compared to just other issues that livestock suffer from especially being out in the wilderness here. Such as sickness, weather. Yeah, you know, sickness, physical ailments, the terrain out here, they can overfeed themselves. There's just a, a myriad of, of various things that can happen out there. Um, not only are there bears, lions, coyotes, wolves to deal with, but there's just an endless thing that these sheep face when they're, when they're moving through the mountains here. And while wolves can play a part in that, it's a very, very small part they play. But the response to a wolf predation is generally loud and taken very, very serious. Why do you think that is compared to maybe depredation by mountain lion or bear or other predators? Why do wolves get the loudest response? I'm sure there's multiple reasons that come into play with each herder, each producer independently. My opinion is the lions and the bears have, have always been here. It seems there's a little more tolerance from outfitters and, and the livestock industry towards those animals that they've always been accustomed to sort of dealing with. The fact that wolves were reintroduced in the 90s, sometimes it's seen as the government coming in and forcing these animals on these producers and these ranchers out here that didn't want them here, had no historical experience with dealing with them. And that's shown in the way that they're compensated as well. There's different compensation throughout each state based on the predator that, that they're dealing with. But overall, it's just been restoring these animals to the original grounds that they've lived on for centuries and forever. So it's, I think it's important to have them here regardless. I want to move over to Tom now from Voyagers. Tom, I'm interested to hear what's sounding familiar in Maxwell's comments, as well as maybe what's a little different for you in your project area. And maybe take a moment to set up uh, the Voyagers Wolf Project as well. Sure, absolutely. So my name is Tom Gable and I lead the Voyagers Wolf Project, which studies wolves in and around Voyagers National Park in northern Minnesota. And a large part of our work is focused on understanding um, the predation behavior and uh, pup rearing behavior of wolves during the summertime in, in our ecosystem. 
that kind of segues in well to when conflicts with wolves generally occur, which is during the summertime. And in our study area, about five miles south of Voyagers National Park, there's a 1,500-acre cattle ranch that has had perpetual issues with wolves going back at least two decades. And every year, wolves are coming onto this ranch, and eventually, a couple of them start causing problems by killing calves. And in Minnesota, things are a little different than they are out west because you have a lot of privately owned ranches. You don't really have public grazing land. You don't have livestock getting moved through large tracts of land. Instead, you just kind of have discrete ranches or farms. So in Minnesota, when there are depredation issues caused by wolves, the main response is for uh, USDA Wildlife Services trappers to come in and remove problem wolves. And in places like Minnesota, it's really hard to know what wolves are the problem wolves because you can't really see wolves very well in our system here. It's very densely forested. And so to remove the problem wolves, you basically just have to remove any wolf you catch. And so what was happening on, on this particular ranch is that there'd be problems year in, year out. And year in, year out, many wolves are getting lethally or legally removed for depredation reasons. In some years, as many as seven or 10 wolves might be killed uh, on this one ranch. And inevitably, some of these wolves would be our research wolves that we've collared, uh, that are wearing GPS collars, and that are wandering around and happen to be on that ranch and, and get killed. And the majority of the wolves that we had collared never caused issues, but they got removed anyways. So we had some challenges on, on the research side with this ranch. And then there's also sort of just the larger problem that we had this large cattle ranch in the middle of prime wolf habitat. And there was no end in sight to this conflict of wolves eating cattle, cattle getting killed, the ranchers losing money um, because there are some calves that he can't find that were likely killed by wolves. And then wolves are losing because they're getting killed. And many of the wolves are getting killed for doing nothing wrong. And so part of what our project did is work with partners in USDA Wildlife Services and the rancher and his family to come up with a plan to try to resolve this problem more permanently so that we didn't have this endless cycle. And we got support from groups like the International Wildlife Coexistence Network, the Humane Society, the USDA, Minnesota Department of Agriculture, a bunch of different groups pitched in. And we arrived at a, a different solution than is working on the Wood River Wolf Project, where we decided to get a fence and build a fence around this entire cattle ranch. And for perspective, this ranch is, has a 7.5 mile perimeter. So this was a massive undertaking. And it was our biggest step to try to resolve this conflict non-lethally as we go forward. And hopefully, if all you know, goes according to plan, becomes a project that others in the region can point to and say, this fence project worked on this ranch, so it can work on other ones and hopefully promote people considering non-lethal options. Because like I said, the primary option to most producers in the state of Minnesota when they have wolf problems is just to call wildlife services and, and get rid of the wolves. You said that the wolves are getting killed for doing nothing wrong. I'd like to maybe consider that for a moment to help people understand why perhaps predating on someone's livestock, someone's cattle might not be doing something wrong. Why is it not a crime? Why is it not a, a misstep on the wolves? Why are they not at fault? That's a good question. It's a great clarifying question. 
And actually, when I said that, I actually meant the wolves that were on that ranch that actually hadn't depredated or killed any cattle. So the basis for that comment is that we studied a lot of wolves that have meandered through this ranch through time. And probably about 90 to 95% of them don't cause any issues, right? So they're, they're just being wolves. They're just traveling long distances, checking things out, just being themselves. Now, there are some wolves that do cause problems and kill cattle, and those become very difficult animals to deal with, I would say. Once wolves have figured out and made that connection that, oh, calves are food, it's really hard, I think, to prevent them from continuing to come to that food source. And this is true of not just cattle, but really any food source. Once a wolf has made the connection that cows are food, it's really hard, I think, with non-lethal deterrence to, to stem that. The goal is, I think, to prevent them from ever coming to that realization that cows are food. But like I said, most wolves don't cause issues. And so that's what was particularly frustrating, I think, was knowing that there were so many wolves that were on this ranch that had done nothing, but still were removed in the effort to find or remove the problem wolf or wolves on that ranch. I'd say that that's not necessarily an easy solution for folks like wildlife services who are tasked for reducing conflict with wolves in Minnesota, because from their perspective, they don't know which wolves are problem wolves. In our area, we're fortunate. We have GPS collars and we can say, okay, this wolf didn't cause problems because we have the tracking data. But in most environments, you have no idea, right? And so from their perspective, they feel that they need to remove multiple wolves or any wolf on that ranch could be the offending wolf, right? And so they had to kind of respond accordingly. And I can understand that to a degree, but I think our, our work was clearly showing that probably a lot of the wolves that are getting removed didn't cause problems. So it became, what's a better solution? And even aside from wolves not causing problems, there's still just this never-ending conflict. The rancher doesn't want his cows getting eaten, which I don't blame them. And, and so how do we stop this? Because no one's winning from the current arrangement. So how do we come up with something that's better that might sort of benefit all parties? And that's how we kind of arrived at this, this fencing option. Yeah, it's a really innovative solution and maybe one that's challenging for others to consider implementing. It, it was a large cost, yes? Oh, yes. It's, it is not cheap. There is no doubt about it. And fences um, have to be was... maintained as well. So that it's ongoing costs. Yeah, there's ongoing costs. The nice thing is the fence that we did use, which is woven wire fence, is pretty sturdy stuff. There are maintenance costs, but I'd say the biggest push is sort of that initial cost. And and not only getting the materials, but there's a huge cost in terms of labor in getting that fence up. And fortunately, with our project and Wildlife Services and the rancher, we basically kind of all, I don't want to say we donated our time, but we kind of provided that sort of labor in kind to make this project happen. And if we didn't kind of have all these people who are willing to put in the time to get the fence up once the supplies have been purchased, the project never would have happened. Because to build a seven and a half mile fence is just not a fast process. And ultimately it took us about two summers to get that completed because we were trying to put up this fence, but on our project, we still have all of our research objectives that are unrelated to the fencing project that we've got to do. Wildlife Services has a bunch of other things they're doing. The rancher has to raise his animals and, and deal with other operations on the ranch. So it's not like any of us could just full-time say, we're just going to be on this ranch all summer building fence. So there were some challenges there, but luckily we were able to make that work. 
And what have the results been like since putting up the fence? It's been really fascinating, the results, I would say, and certainly different than I expected. So the fence has, for the most part, worked pretty well. But it almost feels like we have two different ranches now that we've got this completed. So we have, and, and this is from our collared wolf data. So the fences work to keep out probably about 90 to 95% of the wolves. And that means that we've had many collared wolves that walk up to the fence, walk the edges of the fence, but never get past the fence. But this summer we had two collared wolves that have figured out how to get around that fence. And by around, I mean under for the most part. And there's one female wolf in particular who's the breeding female of the pack that occupies the area in and around that ranch. And she has really figured out how to dig under. There's an apron skirting on the backside of the fence, which is supposed to prevent wolves from digging under. Well, she's figured out how to get under that and then dig under the fence. And so we've found just how much variability there can be within a wolf population and how they respond to things like fences. And we've learned some of the challenges of trying to keep wolves out and some of the spots that wolves like to exploit. And we've been constantly adjusting this summer, trying to figure out how do we fix certain areas in the fence? How do we take care of certain weaknesses? What other, op what other tools might we need to sort of implement? on this ranch to keep wolves out or or to kind of provide an incentive to keep them off. One of the things we learned this year, which we'd kind of known was happening, but it really kind of hit home this year, is that um, wolves were coming on this ranch because they were getting food, not necessarily in the form of calves, but in the form of calf poop. So calf poop, these calves are fed are nursed from their mom, so they're fed a milk diet for the most part. And so when these calves then eat the milk and then they, they poop it out, it sort of becomes these creamy white patties, for lack of better words. And things clicked for us this year when these wolves, these two wolves were really trying to get onto this ranch any way possible, digging holes and all sorts of crazy stuff. And it's like, why are they wanting to get on here? And then moreover, once they got on the ranch, they just kind of be meandering around like in the pasture, like they're right in and amongst the cows, but they're not killing any cows, but they keep coming back and keep coming back. And, and so that was kind of perplexing until we made the connection that they're really coming on the ranch because they want to eat these calf scats. And the way we figured that out is the rancher just happened to mention one day, he's like, oh yeah, when I bring the dogs out into the pasture, they go crazy over these calf scats. They eat them like crazy. And then all of a sudden it clicked, oh, there's a huge food source on the other side of that fence that these two wolves know about and they want to get on because that's easy pickings for them because there's 190 calves. Each of them poops two to three times a day. So there's 900 or 600 scats a day for these wolves to eat. Um, and so that's what we've learned is it's very challenging to stop really motivated wolves because they will do very creative things to get on. Yeah, I definitely know some people who would dig under some fences if there were free ice cream on the other side. <laughs> yes, yes, especially if those people would be starving otherwise. So, <laughs> and I think that's the thing in summertime, it's a lean season for wolves. And so we don't want wolves to make the connection that this ranch or what's on the other side of that fence is food. And so I think for most of the wolves that we've had collared, most of them haven't tried to breach that fence because they're not aware of what's on the other side. 
The problem with particularly this breeding female is that she's been in that territory for three years. So we know she's been on that ranch and she's almost certainly been on that ranch eating poop before. And maybe this is what she did primarily the past couple of years. We don't know for sure. So she's already got that association deeply ingrained. And I think that's why we've had so much trouble keeping her off of that, that ranch. Maxwell, have you noticed any kind of surprising wolf behaviors in your summer so far? Obviously, the, the area we're dealing with is, is very different than kind of the situation Tom mentioned. They directly predate on the livestock when, when they do plan on moving in there. But there was an issue earlier this year where there was a loss of guard dogs and herding dogs, which was taken very, very seriously, both by rancher and wildlife services. And while that's very rare, it generally hasn't happened in quite a few years. And that was outside of our area. We did go provide assistance regardless to help with that. For them to lose dogs as well out there, it's just unfortunate for everybody. Generally, when there's other canids that are pushed into denning sites, wolves will fiercely defend their area. They will come out and retaliate. And it's hard to say whether or not that was a reason for their response in this case, but it was just unfortunate for everybody. And it just kind of escalated the attention that uh, this particular pack was getting at the time. How was the response handled? Who were the stakeholders and what were the outcomes? It was a rancher that works within the county and project area and outside. While most of these companies are large enough that they not only run within our area, but they have multiple vans that they run outside and adjacent. And this was close enough that there was good reason to believe that it could have been one of these packs that move within and, and out of our area. They don't see these boundaries, obviously. They don't, they don't care about county borders or, or forest borders. They move freely as they, as they want to. Wildlife Services, USDA, was, was called to respond. Trapper was sent out to provide support with the intention of removing these these individuals. But on, on the other hand, the rancher was just willing to take any help they could really have. So we're not there to interfere with USDA Wildlife Services and the operations that they're carrying out, but we are there to provide any assistance to these ranchers in any way we can. At that point, the situation became so dire that they were willing to take just any help from anybody willing to offer it. So not only did they have choppers out there looking for these problem individuals, but we're out there, we camp out at elevation, we hike in and we stay on patrol basically throughout the night, trying to deter any sort of predators from moving back in and causing any more issues. And as far as I know, we were successful in that, but just because you can remedy an issue over a few nights or a week doesn't mean that they won't occur again. But yeah, that was definitely a, a hard time for everybody involved and taken very seriously. I guess this brings us back to Thomas's comments about the visibility of predators and wolves on the landscape. I am curious about how in each of your project areas, you're finding ways to monitor wolf behavior and what tech or methods you're using so that you can understand their behavior. Yeah, I can talk about a little bit about what we're using. Our primary tools in our area our GPS collared wolves, because that gives us a snapshot into what some wolves in the area are doing and how they're traveling. And our GPS collars are set to take locations every 20 minutes, which is relatively frequent for GPS collared wolves. And that's so we can get really good high-resolution data on movements and predation behavior and things like that. But 
The negative with PPS collars is you're only going to have a subset of the wolf population collared at any given time, maybe 10% if you're lucky. So that means most of the wolves aren't collared. So the only other way we have then to monitor behavior or presence of wolves on this ranch are using remote cameras or trail cameras because observing wolves is not going to be possible. I mean, you might get a, a glimpse of one, but you're not going to be able to systematically determine how many wolves are moving around a ranch just by visual observation. So we use a lot of trail cameras and trail cameras also are helping us not only determine if or how many wolves are on this ranch at any given time, but it also allows us to monitor wolf behavior at spots along this fence that we've built. So there's some areas where we've closed off the hole the wolves have gotten in and then we put a camera there to see how they respond once they show back up and find out that their hole's been closed. So we get a lot of really good behavioral data, and some of that behavioral data is also going to be useful, I think, as other people try to maybe replicate what we're trying to do. So one really good quick example of this is one of the, the challenges of this fence project is that there were a lot of creeks and rivers that we had to put the fence over. And those are hard because when there's spring rains or floods, it's really hard to keep a fence across a, a river when it rains. So inevitably, there are some spots where there's big culverts that the roads on the ranch go over. So we put the fence kind of over on the top part of that culvert, and the culvert was open. And we initially thought, like, a wolf isn't going to go through a 16 or 20 foot long big culvert because wolves are pretty wary of those sort of things. But then all of a sudden, this collar female we had kept kind of getting on the ranch and kind of going in around where this culvert was. And we thought, she can't be getting through there, right? But... We had a remote camera, we put a remote camera at that culvert, and sure enough, we find out that she's been walking in and out of this ranch through the water in this culvert to get in and out. And so that allowed us to realize, okay, like wolves will do that in the right circumstances, and we need to adjust accordingly. And anyone else who wants to do this somewhere else needs to take that into account as well. We're going to take a pause in this conversation on the truth about living with wolves, but we'll be back shortly with a part two to talk about the troubling misconception around so-called problem wolves and a whole lot more with Maxwell McDaniel from the Wood River Wolf Project and Thomas Gable from the Voyager's Wolf Project. Thanks so much for listening. Come back for part two on For the Wild Ones. Brought to you by the International Wildlife Coexistence Network.